DiscerningHearts.com presents Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lewis. Dr. Lewis is an associate professor and the academic dean of St. John's Seminary in Camarillo, California, as well as the academic advisor for the Juan Diego House of Priestly Formation for the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. Through the years, clergy, seminarians, religious, and lay faithful have benefited from his lectures and retreat conferences on the Carmelite Doctors of the Church and the writings of Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity. Dr. Lewis is also the author of Hidden Mountain Secret Garden, a Theological Contemplation of Prayer. In this series of conversations with Dr. Lewis, we reflect on the writings of Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity. Her retreat, entitled The Last Retreat, is the source of our current reflection. Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lewis. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome, Anthony. Thank you, Chris. It's great to be with you again. We're on day four of the last retreat of Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity. Yeah, we're about a quarter of the way through it. It's a 16-day retreat. Day four uh, has to do with faith. She brings together themes of light and darkness, time and eternity, contemplation, and the kind of understanding that Christian prayer avails our soul to. Yesterday, St. Paul lifted the veil a little and allowed me to gaze on the inheritance of the saints in light, that I might see what their occupation is and try, as far as possible, to conform my life to theirs so as to carry out my work of laudum gloriae. Today it is St. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, who partially opens the eternal gates for me, that I may rest my soul in the heavenly Jerusalem, sweet vision of peace. First of all, he tells me there are no lights in the city, for the glory of God has illuminated it, and its lamp is the Lamb. If I want my interior city to have some similarity and likeness to that of the King of Eternal Ages, and to receive this great illumination from God, I must extinguish every other light, and, as in the holy city, the Lamb must be its only light. So one of my favorite lines of Blessed Elizabeth that she picks up is from St. Paul when he speaks of this inheritance of the saints in light. And it's a line that speaks about the beatific vision that the saints right now are being held in the love of God in a vision of pure love in which all the capacities of our human nature unfold and we know a perfect beatitude. And this is the destiny. God wants us to rest in his love, in this vision of love. And what Elizabeth is saying is that what is being done in heaven right now in the light of glory, we can begin to realize that in our life right now in prayer. It's a remarkable claim. It's saying that contemplation is an anticipation of what our life in heaven is going to be. One of the things that I think 
inhibits people from fully appreciating this is that people tend to think of heaven as some something well kind of boring you know in our movies have you ever noticed they have people floating around on clouds eating cream cheese you know and you see that and all you can think about is boy that's the last place i want to be and and more popularly i think in the back of our minds we have this notion of heaven that it's some kind of like club med you know where once we die we get our little beach house somewhere in the uh, heavenly mediterranean that vision of heaven whether the one that we tell ourselves or the one that we get from the tv that is a heaven of individual bliss and the reason why we ultimately as we think about it we find it boring is because individual bliss isn't sufficient for for the human spirit the human spirit needs something more the human spirit needs to have all of its capacities realize the fullness of them put into action we need to be able to love without cease and this vision of god enables us to love beyond the limits of ourselves to enter into a relationship with god and one another that takes us beyond the limits of our own big fat egos that moment of moving beyond into something that isn't under my control is the movement that elizabeth is talking about when she talks about quenching every light except christ the light of christ as long as our soul is directed towards things to trying to understand and control and manipulate things that are beneath its dignity as long as we're going within the limits of natural human reason we are never free to see what god wants to show us so here's the here's the thing today in in a lot of spiritual exercises that are done directors and retreat masters will sometimes place all the emphasis on in terms of kind of psychological gymnastics and there's nothing wrong with meditating on a scripture passage or imagining yourself in it it's just that that's not the end of christian prayer that those exercises when we imagine ourselves in a biblical scene there to lead us into a place into a deep and beautiful silence where god can reveal himself to us and in revealing himself to us show us something about ourselves not something that we necessarily understand with our own power of reason but something that is so beautiful it strikes us to the heart something about the lord himself so beautiful it captures us it envelops us there's a holy silence then the mind needs to enter into she doesn't use this word but st paul will even speak about christ holding every thought captive it says surrendering of our thoughts to the lord in the natural cognition in our the normal way we think we think about things because in such wise that we want to manipulate and control them generally we want to dominate them and elizabeth is saying don't think like that when you enter into prayer surrender those thoughts to jesus let him show you things that are otherwise difficult to see anthony do you think it's part of our cultural experience at least in the west that we have exercise programs we have logs in which we track how much we've walked in a day or what we've 
done in a performance of an exercise that we, in our prayer, we strap ourselves with those types of expectations of performance. Like I, I'm going to do a piece of Lexio and I'm going to do it three times through and I'm going to it, demanding that and not allowing for that moment where God may break in. We're just not used to that stopping what that performance demanded. Am I, am I being too simplistic? No, I think you're absolutely on to something today that we just need to question. And again, meditation is a good thing. Lexu Divina is a wonderful thing. But when we go about it, when we engage in it, as if it's something by which we're going to control what God does in my life, by which I get to manipulate what the results of my prayer are going to be, by which I force God to meet certain demands that I have for him in my spiritual life. Do you see behind that, behind all that results orientation, there's two things operating. One is pride. I know better than God. The other is fear. There's a lack of confidence that God is actually going to act in me in the way that I most need him to, in a way that maybe is beyond what I understand. And behind those exercises where they begin to hold us back, there is an unhealthy lack of trust, a kind of fear that we have that God is somehow going to let us down in the end. And Elizabeth is inviting us not to be trapped in that fear, not to be trapped in that lack of confidence, but to put away our cleverness and our calculation and our expectations and to surrender ourselves to the Lord in prayer. It says, when Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity says to us, that I may rest my soul in the heavenly Jerusalem. I mean, it, it kind of denotes that pause, doesn't it? And just being present there. It, it does. And what she's proposing, how we enter into the rest, is for her, our souls really are a kind of heaven. The Holy Trinity dwells there. And with the Holy Trinity, all the angels and saints and the people we love are also somehow present in our hearts because of the indwelling presence of, of the Trinity by grace. It's not just a, a nice wish. It's a reality that unfolds. What she's saying here is the more we render our hearts like the cosmic heaven, the more the personal heaven of our hearts becomes like the cosmic heaven revealed in the scriptures, the more we get to rest in that heavenly Jerusalem. When there's harmony between who we are inside and what God has established in the universe, we're able to be at peace. This implies, therefore, that when we approach prayer, when we're illuminated by other lights, and again, things that we can calculate that are subject to our own cleverness, our hearts really aren't at peace. We're not really resting in the Lord. And so our prayer takes on this kind of restlessness that doesn't allow God to reveal everything he wants to reveal to us. In Jerusalem, the word Jerusalem itself means flowing peace. A salam means peace. and A place of flowing peace, sweet Jerusalem, the flowing peace that God has established in the cosmos, he once established in my soul. And I can't establish it myself, but what I can do is I can get rid of things that interfere with God establishing that in me. And that means letting go of my cleverness, letting go of my propensity to want to out-calculate God.
Here, faith, the beautiful light of faith appears. It alone should light my way as I go to meet the bridegroom. The psalmist sings that he hides himself in darkness. Then in another place, he seems to contradict himself by saying that light surrounds him like a cloak. What stands out for me in this apparent contradiction is that I must immerse myself in the sacred darkness by putting all my powers in darkness and emptiness. Then I will meet my master, and the light that surrounds him like a cloak will envelop me also. For he wants his bride to be luminous with his light, his light alone, which is the glory of God. It was said of Moses that he was unshakable in his faith, as if he had seen the invisible. It seems to me that this should be the attitude of a praise of glory who wishes to continue her hymn of thanksgiving through everything, unshakable in her faith, as if she had seen the invisible, unshakable in her faith in his exceeding love. We have known the love of God for us, and we have believed in it. In this passage, what you were getting at before, Chris, in terms of light uh, is being explored again in terms of light and darkness. Ironically, by surrendering our struggle to calculate to be clever with God by surrendering our desire to be satisfied with something we understand in the spiritual life, by surrendering that all to God and letting go of it and realizing He is God, we are, Elizabeth is saying, entering into the hiddenness or the darkness of faith. John on the Cross calls this the dark night. And the dark night isn't dark absolutely. It's filled with the light of God. But it seems dark to us at first because we're so used to getting through life by our own cleverness, our imagination, our, our calculations that when we let go of those, we feel like we don't understand anything. But only by letting go of all those efforts, all those interior mental gymnastics, only by doing that does God begin to give us his understanding and we begin to find him cloaked in light. He becomes the one who enlightens our way, not our desire to be in control, but his love for us. So this kind of concludes with the unshakable faith of Moses in what? In the exceeding love of God. And that's how Elizabeth is going to help us surmount our propensity to want to be in control uh, of everything, our propensity not to trust God. She is relentless in trying to get us to focus on God's excessive love for us, to allow the reality of that to capture us and lead us beyond ourselves. She really is calling us to trust. And this is before the revelation of divine mercy, of course, and Jesus, I trust in you, or this is several hundred years after the great devotion of the Sacred Heart was uh, once again uh, brought forward to St. Margaret Mary a sacred heart I trust in you but yet here is blessed Elizabeth talking about being unshakable in her faith 
in his exceeding love. It, that, that trust element is so important, isn't it? I think you've nailed it. The whole Carmelite doctrine, really, of the dark night is about letting God form and purify in us our trust uh, for him. Because our trust for him in the beginning of the spiritual life is very weak and insipid. And that's why in the beginning of our spiritual life, we're so unstable. We're, we're inclined to fall back into sin and, and bad habit patterns because we haven't entered into, we haven't submitted ourselves, we haven't allowed ourselves to be vulnerable to the peace that he can establish in us, the stillness that he can establish in us. The secret of becoming someone who trusts God, who has confidence in God, who has confidence in divine mercy, is to begin to exercise that confidence, especially in prayer. Faith, St. Paul says, is the substance of things to be hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. What does it matter to the soul that is absorbed in recollection of the light which these words create in it, whether it feels or does not feel, whether it is in darkness or light, whether it enjoys or does not enjoy? It feels a kind of embarrassment in making any distinction between these things, and when it still feels affected by them, it holds itself in deep contempt for its lack of love and quickly looks to its master that he might set it free. In the expression of a great mystic, it exalts him on the highest summit of the mountain of its heart, above the sweetness and consolations that descend from him, for it has resolved to go beyond everything to be united with him whom it loves. It seems to me that to this soul, unshakable in its faith in the God of love, may be addressed these words of the Prince of Apostles. Because you believe, you will be filled with an unshakable and glorified joy. Now, in Carmelite spirituality, in the theology of St. John of the Cross, the movement of our spiritual life is from begins in kind of an anxious search. God doesn't want us to stay in the instability of an anxious search. He's, he's woken up the desire so that we'd pursue him, but the reason why he woke up the desire so we could pursue us is so that he could establish us in peace. And to do that, he needs to lead us through what St. John of the Cross calls the night of the senses. Elizabeth is referring to the dark contemplation in this, this passage that establishes us in that peace of God. It's a peace that comes when we're more radically surrendered to what God does in prayer. When we allow God surrender to his divine action in us and what he's producing in us rather than trying to control God. It's a very difficult transition to make, but the souls that make it enjoy peace and stability. They might fall into sin here and there. Their struggle with habitual sin, throwing them off, is kind of over. They live repentant, mortified lives because God has taught them how to trust more radically. The end of this paragraph, though, 
when she refers to unshakable and glorified joy uh, of St. Peter. Joy is the last stage that St. John of the Cross identifies in his theology. And to come into that joy, there is another dark night that the soul needs to pass through, which is even more painful, where you can feel for a long time that you've displeased God, that your prayer is a waste of time where you don't understand anything about your life anymore. It all seems to be turned upside down. Uh, And I think there are many people who approach the mystery of death who also the Lord invites to pass through this night. And that's one of the reasons why they need us to be with them in a very special way. The dying need the presence of their loved ones around them so they can face those difficulties not alone. Elizabeth of the Trinity, when she writes this last re- this last retreat, she has passed through these nights herself, and she knows how difficult they are. But she also knows that they're worth it. The peace that she received because she learned to be comfortable with only seeing things in terms of the light of Christ. The joy she received because she learned to surrender herself, even when her prayer felt like a waste of time, surrender herself completely to God. She knows that joy, that peace is completely worth it, but she's also aware of the suffering, and she's trying to encourage souls with what she's written here in the face of those sufferings not to be discouraged. It's beyond consolations, beyond the satisfactions we get in the prayer life that uh, we find our deepest joy. Our deepest joy is in God himself. Mm. You know, Anthony, you mentioned that period when we encounter death or we ponder it. Those moments when it's almost as though we've run smack dab into an invisible wall. It's almost like you, you you hit the wall of reality that is of heaven or of at least the next phase of our life that a lot of people... It, it is almost like a smacking into the wall. I've been with someone who is 93 years old and was approaching that time of hospice. The days were, they knew were numbered. And even though for 80 or more years, an act of vibrant faith, when it came right to that moment, right to the wall, it does become as though you've hit this, this invisible wall of doubt you didn't realize was there. Yeah, and I I think that the Lord permits that. He permits those trials uh, to assail uh, the soul. We have descriptions from Therese of Lisieux, Elizabeth of the Trinity, about this moment of death when everything seems to be turned upside down. And what's so beautiful about that moment, it, it shouldn't surprise us that in that moment of weakness, in that moment of supreme trial, we have to confront all kinds of terrifying doubts. That shouldn't surprise us. What's most beautiful about souls that uh, God permits this kind of suffering, in the face of the suffering, they're struggling to believe anyway. For them, there's something beautiful going on in their depths that they're not even remotely aware of. They want to believe. They want to be filled with hope. They want to be a good witness. And they struggle with very, very difficult things, with doubts about whether God loves them, doubts about whether God is there at all, doubts about whether they've wasted their lives. What's beautiful is that that struggle is filled with love. They are still people who are in love with God 
They're just not aware of how much love is in them. They are, as Elizabeth has said in this passage, they are cloaked with Jesus in light. They only see darkness, but the world around them, they have become a source of light, a source of hope for the world. Our privilege is to be with them. Our privilege is to hold their hand in the midst of that struggle. Those great souls are doing more for the church in that struggle that they surrender to the Lord than anything else that could be going on right now. And we need to be with them, supporting them, helping them find reasons for their faith so that they can continue on and persevere. It gives them a joy and it gives the world a joy that nothing, no power can take away. I wish we had more time, Anthony, but any final thoughts on the fourth day? Just this. I think that this teaching on faith that Elizabeth has called us to, a lot of people are very excited. Some people are extremely scared and upset. And other people are are wondering what the future is going to be with great anxiety. If we enter into the logic of faith that Blessed Elizabeth is proposing here, we don't need to be caught up in the turmoil. We can trust that God is going to take care of our lives personally, and he's going to take care of the church. We can trust that the risen Lord has not abandoned the world, that evil will not have free reign, that indeed there is a victory of good over evil, and this victory is being realized anew right here and right now. We can't see it because we are in the darkness of faith, but we can believe in it, and we can trust in God's love, in fact, in his excessive love, and trusting in that excessive love, we're making space for God to do something powerful in our lives and in the whole society around us. Faith, St. Paul says, is the substance of things to be hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. What does it matter to the soul that is absorbed in recollection of the light which these words create in it, whether it feels or does not feel, whether it is in darkness or light, whether it enjoys or does not enjoy? It feels a kind of embarrassment in making any distinction between these things, and when it still feels affected by them, it holds itself in deep contempt for its lack of love and quickly looks to its master that he might set it free. In the expression of a great mystic, it exalts him on the highest summit of the mountain of its heart, above the sweetness and consolations that descend from him, for it has resolved to go beyond everything to be united with him whom it loves. It seems to me that to this soul, unshakable in its faith in the God of love, may be addressed these words of the Prince of Apostles. Because you believe, you will be filled with an unshakable and glorified joy. You've been listening to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lewis. To hear and or to download this episode, along with many others, go to discerninghearts.com. 
This has been a production of DiscerningHearts.com. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Join me next time for Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lewis.